Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Before we get into the show, a fun fact. This podcast was actually born out of a newsletter that we started way back in 2012. Yes, that is before Substack was even born. People really seem to like it, and we think you will too, especially if you like this podcast. It is a quick hit list of 10 things we've discovered recently that we love. Everything from recipes to beauty products to books to tools to truly anything that excites us, like an Instagram post we saw and just can't stop thinking about. We send it every Monday, except for some holidays that we take off, like sane people, and it is free. Sign up at a thing or two hq.com. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thing or two hq.com and sign up for Secret Menu, which will get you weekly access to members only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. What an episode we have today. What an episode. We are talking about Sesame Street Social. Social um, media. Yes. Exactly. When you said it, it made me think it was like an ice cream social that I hadn't been invited to. It would like, definitely be at a skating rink and there would be an ice cream sunda Sunday. I guess mm-hmm. that's how people say it. Yeah. Are. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, all of this. I think that's great. And then we are talking to AJ Delario, um, mm-hmm. who runs this incredible addiction and recovery website called A Small Bow and has a new podcast that we are very, very into called Really Good Shares. We will get into all of that momentarily. But first, Big Bird Cookie Monster in the count. On Twitter and on Instagram. I just, I'm so excited that we're finally talking about this because we've been talking about talking about it for a while. And then (laughs) like at least once a month, one of us sends another social media post from Oscar the Grouch or whoever being like, how are they so good at this? Well, because I think for a minute, honestly, Claire, you were like, it's too big a topic to bite off. It's just, (laughs) (laughs) it's too big. It does feel that way to me. It's too overwhelming. I don't know that I am the right, or or maybe you are, I don't know that we are the right minds to analyze and like critique it and assess it hip of the iceberg on all of this obviously like this is we are not completists here we are just here to say that sesame street is very good 
at things related to social media and also has been for a long time. Like happy 11th anniversary of being good at the internet Sesame (laughs) Street. There was an ad week story about it then of just being like, so you guys on Twitter, so good. (laughs) So good. I was excited when you dug up this article to find out that it was Dan Lewis who was responsible for getting them started on social because he writes this amazing newsletter, Now I Know, which has been around like way long Way longer before before way longer before before newsletters newsletters were a thing. Like even before we started ten things, this guy was doing this daily newsletter. Now I know that was just like that is still just fun facts on the internet, and he's delightful. And he's not at Sesame Street anymore, but he was for a really long time. And he got he got them started on social. And I think why I'm part of the reason I'm so intimidated by the idea of talking about it is because I just don't feel equipped to analyze it as an art form, which it truly is. Like, yes, I think the best example of this just being Count Von Count on Twitter. Incredible content. He (laughs) counts. He just counts on Twitter (laughs) multiple times a day. He spells out the numbers. He, it's like, I'm, there's, I'm sure that there's like a way that, you know, that they've automated this in some mm-hmm. respects. But then at the end, sometimes he says, ah, ah, ah. And like, that's confusing because I'm like, <laughs> no, he oh. says, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So it's like, yes, it's probably maybe automated, but then it's not like his like sound effects come in every fourth one. No, no it's like no, truly it's random. Like, feels randomized. I like the idea that it's like an intern and the intern is so nervous about fucking it up because he does, <laughs> it's, he counts consecutively. Obviously. Like it's not like they're just random He's numbers. Counting. Yeah. He's no. not listing numbers. He's counting. Yeah. yeah. And they're, he, they're up to 107,071 as of this morning, but like who knows <laughs> at this point, cause he does it multiple times a day at what point, like what's happening. And I just feel like, listen, like the entire strategy is just like, is so smart. It just keeps them culturally relevant. It's clearly for adults. Like it's not for the kids, but it like, it certainly endears me to them, um, which I didn't need, but it like keeps them top of mind. You already liked Big Bird plenty. Like you didn't exactly. need this from him. I are, <laughs> but I'm also just like, you decided it was worth figuring out how to have this account tweet a number multiple times a day. Like <laughs> yeah. so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are just like very much themselves on these platforms, you know? And I think that that's the thing that I really love. Like Big Bird tweeted in 2018, this was like a press worthy moment. Big Bird tweeted, Oscar is a grouch, but he's still my friend, even if he doesn't know it. And then Oscar just replied, nope. <laughs> so this is my other question. We, it is marketing. It is like cultural relevance. It, it is art, okay? It's so, and, and like a creative practice. But is it also character development? Like, is is this? I do think we so. think? Do we think that th- this is actually like a a real now true critical part of developing these characters for the TV show? Well, I mean, they've been around for fifty years. They're like fairly mm-hmm. well developed. But I do think it's like, what was that TV show that for a minute the tween the like teens were into, where they were like there was also this like side chatter happening on Facebook. And so you could engage with like the conversations that were happening. Like they had a Facebook group or like a Facebook like I don't know that one. Oh, well, yeah. It's just like this idea of this, like, Mm -hmm. like building out the universe and just like letting Cookie Monster tweet about cookies all the time and like chime in on like the geode that looked like a cookie monster. Yes. On the oh my gosh. Like, I of forgot course about that one. Have an opinion about that. Like, why wouldn't he? Um, something that's a little disconcerting is when I was looking up cookie monsters, Twitter, mm-hmm. he's been on a break since April. 
Um, and I'm just, I want to know why I want to know like what the philosophy is. I want to know if there's like a re-strategizing happening, or I wonder if it's just like, you know what he's taking, he's taking a Twitter break. Like we all should like, this is a hellscape and I don't need to be here right now. (laughs) Entirely possible. And it's like, but what then, what about the count? He can't even take like a couple hours off. I think he doesn't get distracted in the same way by like all that's happening. That's actually a great point. Like this does feel true to Cookie Monster's personality. Yes. He's just like, it's just like too much coming at him all at once. It's overwhelmed. Whereas the Count is just like single-minded about it. I have to say that I agree with you that these characters are incredibly well-developed, but I actually think I might argue that Oscar the Grouch is even more developed on social than he is on the TV show because I think he he's allowed to be even grouchier on social. Mm, like, I just mm-hmm, feel mm-hmm. like he has a little because bit more of an adults, edge Because it's for adults, not for children. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I yeah, think yeah, he has yeah, a little yeah, bit more yeah. of an edge. He, yeah. Sesame Street tweeted the night after the Met Gala. You'd never guess who's catching up on last night's hashtag Met Gala looks. Um, and then a picture of Oscar on his laptop and he responded. And, and said, that laptop is like covered in crime Yeah, and of course. And of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, just to be clear, he replied and said, I do this every year. You'd know if you asked. Now scram. I just feel like Oscar does well, like with the timely content with like, he has a ho- the hottest take, the grimiest take on everything. Like he was sort of meant for social. Yes. Hot as New York City garbage. That's his That's take. right. That's right. <laughs> You're a little bit more like up to date on the, mm-hmm. on the newer people I think of as, or characters I think of as newer, mm-hmm. but I feel like Abby Kadabi has a strong social presence and I don't know much of her. She does. And I don't know a lot of her either. And that is because Cameron still doesn't know how to work the remote. And I (laughs) like to pick the old episodes. Like this morning, Cameron had to stay home from school sick. And so he was watching like a 1984 episode of Sesame Street because I just have that feeling. Like I'd fully trust that the current ones are good too and would probably offer him more stuff that would actually be useful to him. But there's just something where I'm like, I want you to see the stuff that I saw. So I make him watch the like super dated stuff. And it's also fun for me to be like, oh my God, I remember that segment. Well, totally. And also, you know, he's going to have years of watching this. And at a certain point, <laughs> he true. might complain, but we're not there yet. It's like, <laughs> that's right. Content's too new for him to have a sense of when it was made. Exactly. So he's still like stuck on Prairie Dawn, who I think is like extinct at this point. And extinct. <laughs> <laughs> but like with the American Girl dolls where they retire yeah, them. That's right. I think is, yeah. And I, he definitely knows about Abby Kadabi and has mentioned her before, but I'm not, I haven't consumed enough of her to be familiar with her. And yeah, I should probably like discuss with my therapist why I force him to watch the old ones. But it, there's something there where I'm like, you have to watch the old ones. I love this. I love this so much. Should we talk about our guest? Yeah, actually perfect segue because... Sesame Street comes up, has come up like multiple times in AJ Delario's newsletter, The Small Bow. Um, Like he also watches the old episodes. It's also like an important part of his morning routine with his kids. They watch Sesame Street. He wrote a whole really interesting essay about one of the actors from like the 70s or the 80s and that actor's struggle with addiction. And Mm. I mean, he, you know, he has such interesting takes on all of this stuff. It's uh, fascinating. But yes, AJ like kind of came to be known, at least in New York media circles, from his work at Gawker and Deadspin, and then came to be known on a, I would say, a more national stage because of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker that was true, actually a Peter Thiel lawsuit against Gawker. And AJ kind of took center stage in all of that. But he, through all of that, was struggling with alcoholism and addiction. And 
is now in recovery and has this newsletter and just sort of like media business really that we both get so much out of. And, you know, I think we both... Addiction is part of our lives and, and, and alcoholism has impacted both of our lives profoundly, but it's not something we personally struggle with. Yep. I personally get so much out of this newsletter. A hundred percent. And I'm someone who I think... So I've mentioned before that there's alcoholism in my family. What I have mentioned before is that my dad has been in recovery since, or has been sober since, you know, before I was born. So I was, it was never something that was like, there was never like any alcohol in my house when I was growing up. But I learned when I was like 10 or so that this like was a history and a, a disease that he struggled with. And so it's like, I've always consumed a lot of content in this space. And so I feel like I'm a bit of like a pseudo connoisseur <laughs> of this content yep. for being, you know, without like it feeling like, oh, I'm like, just read every addiction memoir or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this is just so good and so useful for anyone who is a human trying to go through the world and who has like struggles and demons and challenges and insecurities, which like is all of us. Yeah. I also just like think AJ has such a unique lens on life because of the way he views it through all of this stuff. And it lends such interesting perspective to the topics he writes about. So I, he's a father of three and I get so much out of his parenting content. Like I learn something interesting or like start thinking about something interesting related to parenting through him talking about how his, you know, history of alcoholism impacts who he is as a parent. Yeah. I'm just super inspired by it. We're so grateful to have the chance to chat with AJ about recovery. And for him, there's some depression and anxiety and self-harm and other hard stuff sort of tied up in that, just as a heads up. But yeah, let's bring AJ on. Thank you so much to ZocDoc for sponsoring today's episode. The other day was like having that thought of, wait, when was the last time I went to the dermatologist and went like, and I end up looking for these things on my calendar and then pulling up, mm, you know, doing a dermatologist. A mm -hmm. Yeah. A dermatologist pointing from 2016 as though that's like possibly the <laughs> information yeah. I was mm -hmm. looking for. And then I had that moment where I was like, oh, right. ZocDoc keeps track of all of these things for me and tells me when it's due. And I can just like log in and be like, oh, Yes, I did that recently, correct. And I went to a primary care physician and all of this. It's also so helpful when you've seen a specialist who you haven't seen for like seven years and you're like, wait, what? Who was that guy who really helped when I like threw Tore my back that out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like sprained exactly. that muscle. Yes. What was that thing? Yeah. Yeah. So nice to have a record. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Just download the free ZocDoc app at ZocDoc.com slash a thing or two for the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews and book an appointment and also look up your old doctors and figure out when the last time you saw them was. You can even do in-person or video chat with ZocDoc. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash a thing or two and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash a thing or two to download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. Thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. So therapy comes up on today's podcast episode with AJ and you know some of us in this 
podcast have not one, but two therapists. So if you even have a therapist that you go see in person, you might even want a backup therapist that you can like text with or video chat with or whatever on your own time outside of your weekly appointments. It's not like, a oh, you have some per- one person to talk to and that's all you're allotted in life. <laughs> Talking to a licensed therapist can help you feel better. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online so you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. They have 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and four modes of communication, text, chat, phone, and video. You can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours and schedule weekly secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. Anything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a different one. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash a thing or two. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash a thing or two. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors who make it possible for us to bring you this show every week. Hey guys, it's Hunter and Michaela. And this is the Model Citizen Podcast. We wanted to let the members of our community experience a different side of us that they see glimmers of, but never the full force. Exactly. We wanted a place where we could talk unfiltered about anything and everything, including our lives and experiences in the modeling industry, beauty, fashion, dating, sex, marriage, a dash of political commentary, and of course, pop culture, honey. We're going all the way in. Tune in every Thursday for a giggle, a laugh, and maybe even a tear or two. You've just found your new best friends, and we're so happy to have you. All right, we're here with AJ. Hi, AJ. Hi. You have have a really nice radio voice. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Great is that how you voice. got your iHeartRadio deal? Kind of. I mean, when they heard me, <laughs> we had a big speakerphone conversation and everybody just fainted. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. They're like, we got uh, whatever this guy's going to talk about, themselves. people are going to listen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lo- love imagining that, that that's how podcast deals happen. The big <laughs> podcast deals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how the professionals do it. AJ, we tried to give you a bit of an intro before you joined, but can you tell us, take us a bit on like the journey to how you got to where you are now? Like into into the podcasting realm or just into the, you know. Into the world. Not not being an (laughs) idiot anymore journey. That one. You Um, could take us through the idiot part of your journey too, if you wanted. Well, did you know me as the idiot during the idiot part? Adjacently. Adjacently. Okay. Got it. All right. All right. So tell us, so you were an idiot. Well. And you're no uh, one. I, yeah, I don't, there's not a good short version no, of I know. this, right? I know, and that's that's what makes this this hard. And I always sound like a jerk too when I talk about it because I, I think I think that the major thing that should be known about the the small bow is that I try not to talk about just you know I was a drunk and now I'm not and hooray, right? It's 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 ultimately this ongoing process that I'm going through about living a new way, which I'm very not so great at. And I think that there's this idea that when people stop drinking, stop using drugs, stop being an idiot, that life becomes better overnight or even in a year. And that's not true that I found either. Like it's this constant process that I'm going through to try to make sure that I'm doing things in a way that is not like me at all. Or like my, my instincts, my instincts are terrible. That's what I've found (laughs) out. Right. Like every single thing that I want to do is usually the wrong thing. So I have to constantly basically go back and reorient myself 
to a way that is not me. Why do you think your instincts are terrible? Part of it, I think, part of it is just like an actual mental illness, right? And I'm not even kind of joking about that. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, that was one of the great parts about being sober is all those things can be seen pretty clearly at this point. It's just like, okay, now I, I'm more depressed than I ever thought I was. I have these anxiety things. I have suicidal ideation, right? And all of these things were that was stuff I knew, but I didn't want to face, obviously, because it's hard. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to feel weird and I didn't want to feel abnormal. I wanted to be as normal as possible. And the way that I could feel normal most of the time was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs and, you know, being a jerk off blogger, right? I mean, can we, are we allowed to curse on this? Oh yeah, is we that, totally is, curse. Is, is jerk I also like, does jerk off even count? Yeah. I think yeah, that's yeah, a whole yeah, other yeah. episode, yeah, 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 you right? know? Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> so I think that once I discovered that I have these self-destructive impulses more than anything, right? And I still had them when I was sober, right? I still wanted to blow up some things that didn't necessarily need blowing up. You know, I had this conversation the other day with someone where I was like, you know, everything is going so well in my life right now. I'm, I'm happy and I'm in love with my wife. I have these three wonderful kids and I dig what I'm doing. And for work, finally, I still want to walk into the ocean. Right. Because it's just, that's, that is my impulse. It's basically just like, I can't have these things. I don't deserve this stuff. This isn't anything that I'm supposed to have. So uh, that's what I mean by my instincts. And, uh, you know, I, I have to remind myself every single day or have other people remind me that my brain is telling me bad things a lot of the time. Right. And that I have to stop listening to it most of the time too, or take medication for it, all these other things. Right. How has the small bow impacted that sort of existence for you? Man, you know, it started out as, like, I mean, just to give a brief boring history on it, there was this company called Civil, which was a cryptocurrency company. I don't remember you guys, it was like three years ago. They gave a bunch of grants to hmm. people and I was one of those grants because I wanted to start a recovery site. But it was coming on the heels of like, the opioid crisis, quote unquote. So they were all about that because, you know, I was no offense to the opioid crisis, but what I was pitching to them was, Hey, I'm, I'm in early recovery. I have no idea what I'm doing. I think there is more interesting stuff about this than people are writing about at the end. Uh, so that's what you mean by like, no offense to the opioid crisis, that the, the lens yeah. through which it was being talked about felt right. not like full to you. Like right. very well, surface. I mean, just real yeah. quick. I yeah. mean, Fentanyl's been around forever. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's just getting all the press right now. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, that's what I was kind of explaining that there's yeah. just all these other things that, you know, it, like sick is sick. Right. Right. Either way. Yeah. And the and substance you, matters less than the illness. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's, yeah. that's it. Right. Yeah. Did your instinct to want to start a recovery site, did you feel like it would help you with your own recovery or did you just think it was an interesting project? I mean, when you work in media, I'll say, like you know, generously to myself for, for so long, when I got out of rehab, I thought that I'd be able to find things that I would be interested in reading, right? I was kind of excited about that. Just like, oh. A new well, genre. Yeah. yeah well, well, but I mean, also just like I hadn't had my phone for 60 days while I was in rehab. And I, I was see. just yeah. like, okay, now I want to jump into this, right? 
And every single site that I would seem to, like Google would take me to was basically a rehab site or it was a place trying to push me back into rehab. And it, and it turns out that there's a, a lot of advertorial that is basically kind of, you know, putting out most of this content. So yeah, because that's where and, the money yeah. is, is getting and, uh, people into rehab. All of it, right? Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like most of these sites are bankrolled by rehabs, Yeah, right? Which, yeah. you know, so I wanted to find a way to write about this stuff without taking that money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I wanted to write about this as a way of like, you know, I, I mean, rehab doesn't work for everybody. Rehab's kind of a shady business, if yeah. we're going to be honest about it. There was a good New Yorker piece a couple of years ago about the shady business of rehab, right? Yeah, there was, especially like yeah. in Florida. Yeah. And, yes. you know, and that's, I, I went to rehab in Florida too. And it's, um, you'd be amazed at why this industry, I don't want to get political about this, but I mean, this industry solely exists to keep people sick, right? That's the only way it works, right? Did and rehab the, work for you? Yeah, but I relapsed. I relapsed because of the fucking Hogan trial. You know, mm-hmm. but I mean, which we can get into if you want mm-hmm. to, but it did, but I was kind of a charmer in rehab too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I knew how to talk to the counselors. I knew how to be funny. So, you know, I, I, I got a lot of slack, a lot about a lot of things, but I, I didn't take my phone. I didn't do any meds like while I was there because I thought it was, I love pills. And I was like, I don't, don't want to take any more pills, but what it allowed me to do was give me at least like two months clear headed. And I liked how I felt during that time. The bad part about that is, it's just like, you know, and they, it's, it's called a pink cloud sort of thing where it's just like, you know, that doesn't stay forever. Right. That feeling gets real dark real quick after that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready for that per se, but I also knew that it got, you know, it, it lifted and then it would get dark again. So I was going through the, all of these phases that I didn't know were normal or not. And I wanted to write about that part. Like it wasn't just, I went to rehab and things were great. I went to rehab, things were great in rehab. Then I got out of rehab and everything got weird again. Right. And uh, so that I wanted to find out other people's experience like that. And I couldn't find anything online that would kind of match up the way I was feeling. Like I Googled literally just like, I am 54 days sober and I want to run into the middle of traffic just to see that would come up. (laughs) Right. And it was just another rehab ad. So it's just like, you know, we're telling me a 1-800 number to call because I was in crisis. But I, I don't think that should be the case for everybody in the small bow. And my mind was there to kind of give people an, an alternative to that sort of thing. How has the vision for the small bow changed over the time that you've been doing it? I started out, I never wanted to write for the small bow. Like I wanted mm-hmm. to edit the small bow. I wanted to, I had, a, I had a bunch of people in mind that I wanted to write for it and whose experiences I wanted to listen to. But I really wanted to keep it to a minimal. And, and part of that was because, you know, I didn't know what my voice was supposed to be at that point. I remember who I used to be as, as a blogger for like all the Gawker properties, but I didn't know who I was supposed to be or who I could be as a writer at that point. I did, And I also didn't want a redemption story or to look like I was looking for redemption, right? I was very, very self-conscious about that. But when the grant money ran out, I had the, either the option of shutting it down or me taking over all of the writing part of it, which I, I did reluctantly, but I got comfortable with it over time. It probably took around a month to a year for me to get comfortable with 
you know, me talking about some of the stuff that I talk about. And I would say about a year in, I was just like, oh, damn, I, I finished my recovery story. I've told all the kind of just like the interesting parts. What else am I going to write about? But that's when it kind of took off. <laughs> Once <laughs> I started really real timing the whole entire thing, which, which has been great. And the fact that you know more people are responding to it than initially, or at least initially that I thought is, is wonderful. Thank you so much to Dipsy for sponsoring today's episode. So something we learned from Dipsy, who's been a, a longtime sponsor at this point, is that 90% of women use mental framing or like scenario conjuring to get turned on. It's not just about like watching a thing on a screen. Yet most of the innovation and investment in female pleasure and like obviously pleasure in general has been focused on the body rather than the brain. But we have brains. We have brains. I and mean, they, they, they like to be framed. <laughs> I feel like romance novel authors have known this for a long time. And Claire, that's exactly like, it. <laughs> I just think, you know, all of this, this entire industry has been commandeered by men. And it's so exciting to see Dipsy come in and make something specifically for women. So Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories designed to turn you on. Each Dipsy audio story features characters that feel like real people in immersive scenarios. So you feel like you're right there. Listen to stories about hooking up with your hometown crush you never made a move on or that coworker you always had a little thing for. Or maybe a story that puts you in bed with someone who's telling you exactly what they like you to do. They release new content every week. So there's always more to explore. No matter what you're into or what turns you on. And if you need to wind down, Dipsy also has wellness sessions, sensual bedtime stories, and soundscapes to help you relax before you drift off. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash a thing or two. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash a thing or two. Dipsystories.com slash a thing or two. Thank you so much to Girlfriend Collectives for sponsoring today's episode. I got my Girlfriend Collective in the mail the other day and... I was so impressed. The quality and the material is so nice. And I shouldn't have been surprised, but I also feel like there's all these new athleisure and activewear brands that I assume are like more focused on the look than the feel. And this stuff feels so good. And it's it like very plush or something. I don't know what the, yeah, what the right adjective is, but it, yeah, it's soft. It's, it's like it's comforting really soft, feeling. It's sturdy. It holds you in in the right ways. And I brought me back to remembering that when this company launched, I don't know how long ago, like at least a few years ago, our buyer Marie started raving about them because she had taken advantage. They had started just giving away their leggings for free. Like maybe you only had to pay shipping or something. And she came in and she was like, did you get these leggings? They're amazing. They're so good. And it's like so much more than leggings now. They have so much stuff, including a very chic puffer vest that I kind of want to get. I'm just like, I'm very impressed with this line. I feel like I didn't pay close enough attention to it. And now I'm I'm super into it. You're in, you're in. So if you haven't been paying enough attention to Girlfriend Collective, it is a sustainable, ethically made active wear line for everyone. They make cute, comfortable bras, leggings, shorts, tanks, tees, swimsuits, puffers, and their sizing is inclusive, ranging from extra extra small to 6XL. They believe health and wellness come in many shapes and sizes and the representation matters. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective has functional fabrics, colors, and styles for any activity. Their best-selling leggings are squat-proof, come with pockets, and have different levels of support, whether you need compression or comfort. And they come in tons of colors from brights to basics. They use recycled materials to make their clothing and their shipping is 100% recyclable. 
Girlfriend helps divert waste from landfills and supports an ethical work environment for the people who make your clothes. And Girlfriend Collective also has a garment take-back program called Regirlfriend. So once you're done loving their pieces a long, long time from now, obviously send them back to be upcycled into new Girlfriend gear. Join the collective today and feel good about what you buy and comfortable in what you wear. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering first-time customers $25 off purchases of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash a thing or two. That's $25 off $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash a thing or two. Be sure to use our URL and let them know that we sent you. That's girlfriend.com slash a thing or two for $25 off your purchase of $100 or more. Thank you so much for supporting the brands that support us by using the unique links and codes they create for our listeners. The podcast is so good and it feels... It's like a little bit of a different format, but certainly like the same DNA as the newsletter. Why did you want to start a podcast? What what did you feel like it was going to add? You know, I didn't want to start a podcast because everybody <laughs> has podcasts, right? Well, I, I, and, and I also suffered from the same sort of insecurity that I had writing the newsletter. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be a host. I think I'll be a lousy host, but let me try to kind of put together a podcast that I think could work if I wasn't involved. Mm-hmm. Right, here. you're really There's cutting something... yourself out of all of this. Yeah, yeah. in the beginning and at it, least. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, and and I think I think part of that is smart to do yeah. it that way too, because then I can kind of just I like being an editor more than I like being a writer. Right, I think my instinct is that more than anything. So to conceptualize it was a lot easier than to actually think of me. Oh, who's a good guest that I would talk to that would be interesting? Because I didn't know, and I didn't know what questions to ask or what I should ask. But I knew people's stories that I found that were interesting or inspiring. And not all of them were people who got sober, right? I mean, the first one that I have was Emma Carmichael, who was the editor of Jezebel and Hairpin. And she was my managing editor. We worked together at at Gawker at the time. And, you know, she had this awful car accident. And, you know, the way she, that she handled that and all these bad things that were going on in her life, she wasn't like a melodramatic about it. She was clearly not handling it the way that I thought I would handle it, which is kind of just self-serving in its own way and seeking approval and validation and to have an interesting story. She was just very quiet and did her physical therapy and cried quietly by herself, only talked to a couple of people, but got better and stronger. And I'm like, I want that. Like, how do I get that? Because I, I, I feel very ill-equipped to kind of handle things constantly. And whatever she did to get through that and whatever she is now, that's something that I want to have. I wanted her to tell me that story. That was kind of just the baseline story that I want. How do I kind of get something from all these people in my life who don't necessarily have to be in recovery or I meet in AA rooms or anything like that? Uh, how's that transference going to happen? And I figured more people would be interested in that side of things than just, you know, here's a drunk guy who stopped drinking and look, he's happy now. Well, and also you're just sharing different kinds of stories now. I mean, you're sharing so much of yourself when you're talking about like, you know, getting comfortable, you know, writing in a first person and sharing those stories. I'm thinking like, yes, there's that, but also you're sharing so much emotion and so much like of, you're sharing so much of what's happening in your brain and what's like swirling around in your mind that I don't think I even recognize in myself. Well, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think that word vulnerable is kind of overused at this point, but I had to all learn how to do that, you know, as, as a writer, 
because my, you know, again, this goes back to the instinct thing. I, like I have this, this policy that I still try to, you know, apply in these stories. It's just like, I need one joke for every mope. Right. <laughs> I, so I, as I don't want to, I don't want to keep it a, like a, a downer all the time. Right. Because yeah. I, I don't think that's really healthy or appropriate for this sort of thing. So I try to be kind of both self-deprecating, but I also try to be as vulnerable as possible, you know, and it, it's a lot easier to talk about the insecurities about being a sober person with a, a very public past. And then obviously, I mean, being a new parent with that coupled, I mean, there's massive amounts of insecurity in that. And I try to tap into that as much as I possibly can. Cause I mean, that seems to, lots of people go through that in any sort of way. I mean, just like you know, most of my audience right now is new parents. <laughs> I would say that. I mean, that stuff resonates with me so deeply. And I like, I'm always telling Eric about it. I told you about it that and it's not just because you're smart and you're a good writer writing about being a new parent in an honest way. Like the fact that you are writing about it through the lens of addiction add something to it that like I never could have anticipated that makes it all the more valuable in a way that is just so fascinating to me. There's, you wrote an essay about, to reduce it um, (laughs) to one (laughs) sentence, um, about like kids being kept up by monsters, right? And you're, by the being scared of monsters and your experience of this and, and now your kids are experiencing it. And you wrote this passage that I just like is like etched. It is like tattooed on my brain. You said, the world will thrash my children in the way the world does. And I've mostly accepted it. One of the only ways I feel like I can prepare them for that is to believe them when they see scary things, when they feel scary things, because I've been there and seen those monsters. I've also had depression because of them, the pinballing mania and the empty sadness and spent too many long sweaty nights wide awake with people I kind of hate just to keep the lights on a bit more. So who am I to tell my children what's real or not? It's all real to me until they say otherwise. That's what I'm here for. I just am like, I can't. It was so good. I'm going to cry. Are you going to cry? Yeah. I I was so worried I was going to cry during this episode in general because I cried on a recent episode and I'm like, I can't cry on another episode. But Uh, I just hate parenting content and I read it like every other parent because I'm like, I don't know how, I don't instinctively know how to potty train my kid, but like it all goes in one ear and out the other. And just you wait. Fun part. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And I just, your parenting content, though, is the stuff that really sticks with me and that I think is like, you know, I've forgotten everything else I'm supposed to learn from those books for the most part, except for this stuff, because it's just so impactful. I'm moving into right. that reference of being like, yeah, when you're an addict, oftentimes you're doing it because you you don't want to face the, the monsters. And how is that any different from the yeah. monsters that your kids see? I never felt more prepared for anything in my life than when my two-year-old started having nightmares, right? Hmm. I was like, basically just like, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly which windows to basically turn down. I know which shadows on the wall are basically going to freak you out. I know who I can basically pull out of the stuffed animals I can put on patrol the rest of the night. I know basically just like how open the door needs to be, what light needs to be on, what light needs to be off. Like I was on it, right? (laughs) You know, And, and that was kind of just like this moment where I was just like, oh, this is where I can kind of be uh, you know, uh, almost of service to my children, right? Mm-hmm. Is basically just like having the compassion for these sort of fears. Yeah. Because I remember like, and I hate to kind of just like, you know, under the bus, my parents here, but they weren't too great about that stuff. Right. You know, locking me out and shit like that. And that didn't help at all. You know, just 
made me mad and sad and feel all the worse than I actually felt at the time, right? It certainly didn't make me less afraid. Mm-hmm. Probably made me just, uh, you know, uh, it, it led me to lying yeah. more than anything, yeah. right? You know, and I, like I said, I mean, I can't, I can't control and, and their personal safety at all, really, or definitely not forever. But right now, I can probably not make them feel foolish for having these sort of fears, right? It's just, yeah, I, there's so much parenting instruction that's based on, like, just trust us that if you let your kid cry, it's for the best in the long term. And I subscribe to a lot of it. But this was this this piece of advice or instruction or just like this idea that just made so much sense to me. I was like, yes, totally. And right. for you to connect it in this long term to having these like sort of, in a way that an adult could relate to was uh-huh. really profound. Do you talk to them about your past? Not yet. Because there are four, two, and one. Mm-hmm. Right? My middle one's going to be three this, this week. But mm-hmm. uh, no, but I, I always think about it. But uh, I have to be, I have to talk to them about that. I'm so scared to death to talk. Right? You know. I uh, I connect a lot with your parenting and fatherhood content as someone who does not have kids. And I'm like such a dummy that I didn't put together the pieces of like partially why until we're talking about this now, like the fatherhood stuff specifically, because my dad has been sober my whole life. Oh, nice. um, and but it's always something that's been like very part of my life. I learned about him being an alcoholic and him being sober when I was 10 Um, And can distinctly remember the conversation. And it was like a conversation with my mom on my parents' bed and her explaining to me, partially because, you know, I was like approaching that age where some of those things might become relevant and partially because at least at that time, and I don't know if it's changed at all, the genetic understanding was that it like is more likely to pass from fathers to daughters. And it shaped so much of my experience, you know, as a teenager and it like, I was like scared shitless of substances. Um, and yeah. it's just like really like, I mean, wow. I didn't drink until middle of college because I was just like, it just right. like, it, it it was like not a shiny thing for me. Hmm. What was the, can I ask you what the extent of the conversation was? Because yeah. I, for my own Yeah, 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 purposes. of course. <sighs> the extent of the conversation was, I think that your dad, before we, before you were born, before your brothers were born, used to have a problem with alcohol and he doesn't anymore, but it's something he has to work on and think about every day. And it's something you need to know about because it's part of his life and part of, you know, his experience. And it's also something you need to know about because it could potentially affect you because these things like are or can be genetic. And I think that my youngest brother and I are probably the most likely to have what what, like addictive personality types. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was like most relevant probably for us. Right. Yeah. Why do you think you're likely to have an addictive personality type? Oh, um, uh, well, just, I mean, I think like certain like traits and characteristics of just like the like approach to things is like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I think I'm more of a single minded. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I I have it because I have it in every single part of my life. Like I, I need to eat a sleeve of cookies as opposed to just two. Yeah. Like, I mean, my four-year-old took away like uh, Ben and Jerry's from me last night. Cause I was just eating, you know, at the thing. He's just like, no more. Yeah. 
Jesus like took it from me. Yeah. I'm like, I had two bites. Yeah. It's not going to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But I, but I always eat the pint. I always eat like 10 cookies. I always do like a whole block of, you know, Tillamook cheese. I mean, I'm just like constantly wanting. It's like an on or an off. Yeah. 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 No, but I also, it's just, I need, I need that kind of just that punch of something. Like, I mean, I used to be, you know, when I was younger, I mean, I used to, and I didn't know it was cutting at the time, right? But I used to like, you know, break open like those little pencil sharpeners that you get uh-huh, in like uh-huh, elementary uh-huh. school and grab the razor blade and just do it all over my leg, right? And and then I would like run through the thorn bushes just to like make it look good for my parents because they're like, you know. <laughs> make um, it a better, better yeah, composition. Right? But yeah. I, I still need that sort of stuff. And that's kind of just like when I, you know, I'm super into running now or I'll super yep. be into something else or like, you know, I constantly need that invisible button that can't be pressed. Right. Like I, I need that. Right. You know, and I mean, what relaxes me at night sometimes is when I can't sleep, I watch super violent movies. Right. Like it's not, it's not normal. I know that, but I mean, at the same time, it's just like, I'm, I'm looking for that sort of kind of reaction to happen. Yeah. Beer or some sort of just, you need strong gonna flavors. Make- yeah, but I mean, I also yeah. just get so used to being uncomfortable. Like uh. I've been uncomfortable my whole life that sometimes when I need to relax, that's how I need to be. That's how I need to feel, right? You know, I mean, that's kind of it. Everything's kind of screwy. Is that something you're like at peace with where you're like, this is actually productive for me to make myself uncomfortable in this way? I, I think it's, there's management like stuff that I have to kind of apply. And that part of that is accepting kind of just like how my brain works too. And there are things that I can kind of, you know, like I said, I, I can not do certain things, you know, not like walk into the ocean, not blow up my marriage, not just like, you know, move to another city, like instinctively, you know, like, but then there's other stuff, right? I give myself a pass. All right. Well, so I ate 15 cookies. No big deal. Right. So I ate the whole pint. So I'm, you know, watching the little kid get eaten in Jaws twice in a row for some reason, right? You know, I just like, I mean, I'm like, that's okay. That's not going to, that's where it's good. There's going to be a period after that, right? You know, where I get into the danger zone more than anything is when I try to suppress that stuff and stay quiet about it. Mm-hmm. Just build, build, build. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, these little outlets that I have right now, they're fine. That's a useful way to think about it, that it's not about like trying to cure yourself of the like your personality, yeah. right? Or like right. your instincts. It's about like finding ways to do it yeah. that develop are safe. You talk about all of these like illnesses and struggles very in a very matter of fact way without pity. And in doing so, I think really reframe or, or at least try to reframe the conversation of like, how do we deal with these things, right? Like right. if we aren't just thinking of it as this really like gentle, fragile, pitiful thing, is there a different way to look at it? And yeah. one of, I mean, I love all, we talked about Sesame Street at the top of this episode before you right. joined us. And uh. um, we talked about their social media, but also mentioned in, in the intro that, that it clearly like plays a big role in your life. And you wrote, this story about uh, David, yes, Man. the actor on Sesame Street who <sighs> clearly struggled with mental health and substance abuse, and the way that they dealt with that in this sort of like your imagination or, or, or your sort of like an 
assumption that the brass, let's call them, at Sesame Street saw it not just as a liability, but as like, how do we help this person, uh, right. or how do we support this person? Yeah, it was and actually this is part of his life. World. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just, and it was just one producer that apparently like felt yeah. that way because everybody else wanted, uh, you know, was just like, yeah, we, we have this this kid show, we can't have this article out there about this guy who was terrorizing like this town mm-hmm. during a moment of kind of just you know having a complete nervous breakdown and a mental crisis. I mean, you know, the salacious part of that story was not as interesting to me as the producer who basically just like is demonstrating a level of kind of compassion that would seem off the charts for me, especially yeah. in like 1978. That mm-hmm. That's also the thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and just, and that, and that goes back to this, this thing where it's just like, you know, I, and I wish I could talk to her, but she's like 93 and I, you know, unreachable at this point, but how do I go through the world being that person? David from Sesame street got that help, mm-hmm. even though he was doing horrific things right and mm-hmm. i mean that was like out in the public this woman stepped in and basically just said we don't fire the sick mm-hmm. and i just thought that was so powerful when i read that and i was like yeah uh, how, how do i how do i get to a point where i can actually just like you know see that in other people as well because i have a tough time thinking of myself you know as as not a, a liability to my family I and mean, that's huge I mean, it's just like, I, you know, when I'm having an episode and I have to explain that to my wife, I can see the expression in her face. Like, she's scared. And I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do that to my children. I mean, it's just like, you know, but I also think it's more responsible for me to say something than it is for me to kind of keep it inside. Right. You know? Yes. 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 But I'm learning how to do that because I hate myself after that, you know, but, you know, thankfully we have like this medication on hand now or it's can just knock me out before I do something to hurt myself, right? How do you think about what is healthy? And there's so many things that you log and share in the small bow that have become practices for you. Right, yeah. I mean, I know, for example, just I started drinking a lot of water every single day. Yeah. Because I realized when I don't drink a lot of water, I change. I just, you know, when you get that kind of dried up feeling, I feel it in my head too. And I feel distracted and antsy and ornery. So, I mean, I think just the, the practice of just drinking a lot of water helps calm me down. Right. And also it's good for you. Right. But I also, I'm very big into meditation. I meditate every single day, you know, and I have two therapists. I have a network of people to talk to. I have like all of these things on the ready in case stuff starts to pop off with me. I mean, just like, you know, I explained it to, and in our house, if I'm having an episode in some capacity, which I mean, I think is not the correct terminology, but and I call it just like, we have a, like an earthquake kit. We have a to-go bag ready. We have a, a plan, right? Yep. Where it's just like, okay, you know, and, and this is how I have to approach that. And that. That's a lot more healthy than pretending that it's not happening or that I'm cured, right? And it's also made things a lot easier to kind of continue to exist in the world and be a person in the world as opposed to kind of just like, you know, hiding this stuff for so long. Because, I mean, I wanted so badly to be normal for such a long time. And whatever we're calling normal, I'll put quotes around it if you want to. But, you know, it was a lot easier for me to kind of just to break up with somebody when they thought I was acting weird than mm. it was to actually have a conversation about what was really going on. Right. 
and you know, trying to recalibrate in terms of just like all my social interactions in that way and how to be as upfront as possible is a challenge because some people aren't ready to listen to that at this point. Some people still think I'm overreacting or doing it to get attention or things along those lines. And it's, you know, the last four or five years, it's taken me a while to get used to the fact that I'm not. This is just how my brain works, right? And, you know, just having the conversation with the producer of my podcast before this, where I was trying to, she was asking me how do we kind of sonically talk about if you're having a panic attack in a crisis. And I had to think about what that actually happens and what's the visual in my mind. And I said, just like, you know, imagine a, a, a long wooden bookshelf that kind of extends across a, a, a wall and then line that bookshelf with glassware, right? And then knock one glass off and it shatters. And then, you know, another glass falls. And then, and then it's like they're all shattering almost at once, right? And that's kind of just what is happening. And then, you know, instead of wanting to clean it up, you want to roll around in the glass because that's how my brain works, right? That's the best way of kind of just like, you know, showing the sequence of just sometimes how this stuff happens for me when I'm in a manic state, right? And I, I, I think that that's important to put out there that specifically, right? Because I think most people have this generalized kind of viewpoint of what people do or act like in those things. But I, it was a wonderful question. And I love that prompt that you gave me to really think about that. Because, you know, I'd never heard myself say that out loud before, but that's actually what happens to me, right? And it's, you know, it's it's not that gruesome, but I mean, I think, yeah, you know, if... I can tell at least a little bit when you're listening to it, you're just like, oh, that's evocative, right? <laughs> <In some laughs> totally. Way, you know? But I, I, th- I think that that's really what I want to try to put out in the world, not necessarily for myself or to help people, but so I can get some feedback back where I can basically have someone say, just like, oh yeah, here's my thing, how this happens, right? It's not glassware, it's another thing. And one of the best parts about the small bow is I'm meeting so many people who have that sort of similar thing, right? Who I can talk to now about that. Like my network has expanded in that way, right? I have well, so you're many like people- starting so many conversations in yeah. the things that you write. Right, and just like yeah. connections in that way. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, and I, you know, I, I know that sounds like it's, it's a pitch for the show, but believe me, that was real accidental. Because like I said, I didn't know who I was writing for. I tried to not write for the audience that I was used to. Because it took me a while to be, I, I was so afraid of like, deadspin commenters or like people that hated Gawker or that who thought, you know, I was just like, you know, the guy from that trial who sank the company that, you know, it it took me a while to get used to the fact that it was just like, oh, I am that guy in some capacity, but how do I roll that into this new person? Right. How do I kind of show that anxiety about being that person? Right. I think that that's more helpful as opposed to pretending that that person never existed or that I was just faking it for page views, right? You know, because it wasn't, you know, I was, I was, I was doing some stuff that never really felt good. And I'm talking about just my former jobs and my, my life that way. But, you know, I thought that's what I needed to do to be great at a job. And I thought I had a unique skill set. I was just like, this is more success than I've ever had. Just being a lowly writer. Famous magazines writing stories about me, and they're not 
they're not saying nice things about me, but they're saying things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was just like, well, maybe that's my, maybe that's my skill. Right. I don't want that. (laughs) But how do you, how do you kind of, I, I, I wasn't a strong enough person to say no to that success. Right. Yeah. And that was really it. Are there other just writers, books, anything that have been helpful to you or that you look to um, for inspiration or that help you and have helped you in recovery? Yeah. I mean, I, and I, and this is so hacky, but Pema Chodron is basically just like, yeah. that's a, everybody needs it. When things yeah. fall apart, that's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Just read that every single day. It's same, always same. there. Yeah, yeah. It's all in there. Like, yeah. and, and, and I think that that's, that, that, that is the thing that I, I constantly return to when I feel stuck, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, not stuck just in a, a careerist perspective or anything along those lines, but I mean, just stuck in a way that is like, you know, man, I, I don't think I'm ever going to feel any better than this, right? And then you read her and she's just like, you're right. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I mean, the whole, there's that whole section, which is just wonderful about just like why hope is bad. And I'm just like, you know, you're right. Yeah. So it's like, we have to kind of just like, you know, settle for what is right in front of us and get used to that. And that's something that I think, you know, most people who are in recovery have to confront constantly. People who do have kind of just, you know, mental illness in some ways have to confront constantly is this idea that basically just like, oh, things should be better, right? But, you know, it's a lot easier for me to kind of go through life thinking that it's just like, okay, this is temporary. The weather will change, right? But also at the same time, it's going to get bad again, right? Yes, like yes, 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 yes. That's, that's, that's what we have. And that's exactly just like what I have to get better at. Do you have the pocket, Pema? Yes, <laughs> I sure do. I just have this really visceral memory when we were starting of a kind and I was like deep in a sort of depressive period, taking the subway to Erica's house to go work on something. And I had the pocket Pema out. And then there was this woman like sort of sitting diagonally across the subway, also reading the pocket Pema. And it was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, we're both right. probably struggling with something right now. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> we're both probably yeah, having just, a rough day. Just gave we, like the knowing <laughs> nod. Yes, basically. Exactly. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Like it was, it was that scene in Fight Club, basically, but totally. it's just with, Pema, it's with the pocket Pema. AJ, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, man, it's over. I know. <laughs> That's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media, and we are so, so grateful to the talented team over there for helping us to make this podcast happen, especially our outstanding producer, Brian Peoples. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and sign up for our newsletter at a thing or two HQ.com. If you love our show, consider supporting it by signing up for Secret Menu at, you guessed it, a thing or two HQ.com.